Welcome to the Didache Divine Service. Tonight we focus on confession, but we will begin with the invocation and prayer along with the hymn on the catechism and review a little bit of where we have been over the course of this year, going through the basics of the Christian faith, Ten Commandments, Creed, and Lord's Prayer, and allowing that to lead us into the discussion about confession of sins and our need for pastoral care. By studying David and his fall into sin, grievous sin, and how Nathan ministered to him uh, as a pastor to call him to repentance and forgiveness. Alleluia, Christ is risen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, merciful Father, since you have wakened from death the shepherd of your sheep, grant us your Holy Spirit, that when we hear the voice of our shepherd, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 865.
Now, if you would like to leave your hymnal open to 865 for a moment, just some introductory remarks. Most of you have been here throughout the year for most of the didache, which is the Greek word for teaching. And in that course of the year, we have studied the catechism, which is another Greek word. The catechism is the body of teaching that's foundational to the Christian faith. The Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which goes back to the second century in the form that we have it now, all of the basic facts of salvation, the Lord's Prayer given to us by Jesus, and then the wonderful gifts of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, much of which we studied during Lent and the Passion of our Lord. And then Pastor Gelbach introduced the Office of the Keys and Confession last week, which we continue tonight, which has to do with what Jesus said in the upper room on Easter night. Peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So that's the essential catechism. And I mention where we have been for the sake of Deaconess Grace Rao, who's here tonight with us as a guest, and also Benita from my mother's apartment complex with us for tonight. So you haven't been with us before, but these are the things that we've been studying. Think about the Ten Commandments. They were given by God on Mount Sinai. They're recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Ten Commandments are God's law. They show us our sin and how much we need a Savior. The Ten Commandments call us to repentance. That through the message of the gospel, the good news of God's love for us in Jesus, we might come to believe and know the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And so in the hymn, Lord help us ever to retain the catechism's doctrine plain as Luther taught the word of truth in simple style to tender youth. What Luther did was take those basic components, commandments, creed, Lord's Prayer, the Bible passages on baptism and the Lord's Supper and forgiveness, and give us simple but devotional and powerful explanations to those and how we understand all of that word of God and its relationship to our faith and life as Christians. So in verse 2, help us your holy law to learn. There's the Ten Commandments. To mourn our sin. That's contrition, godly sorrow for sin. And from our sin turn in faith to you. God the Father, and to your Son, and to the Holy Spirit, three in one. That ending of the second stanza talks about the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Every one of us who are Christians were baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The creed gives us in simple form the name of the triune God and what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done for us. 
The Lord's Prayer then given to us by Jesus in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 described the holy life, the voice of faith. You see, when we're brought to repentance and faith in Jesus, then like little children baptized in the name of Jesus, we cry out to him for all of our needs, for forgiveness, life, salvation, guidance, help, protection, defense, and so forth. And that's the holy life. Our lives are made holy not by what we have done, by what Jesus has done, what we receive from him. And then in prayer, we call upon the Lord claiming all of his promises to us. So, verse 3 says, Hear us, dear Father, when we pray for needed help from day to day that as your children we may live whom you baptized and so received. Commandments, creed, Lord's Prayer. And then, baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper are what create, strengthen, nurture, fortify us in the Christian faith and life. So we need God's word from outside of ourselves. So tonight, when we talk about absolution, which is a fancy word for forgiveness, when we talk about absolution, we're talking about preaching. The fundamental purpose of preaching is to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. You are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. But Christ has died for you. He has taken his sin upon himself on the altar of the cross. He has made atonement, which is a fancy word for payment for your sin. And from God's love, which the Bible calls grace, he forgives your sin for Jesus' sake. And we are saved or justified or declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Faith is not a good work. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by God's word. And faith is the hand of reception. It receives what Jesus does. Like a child receives the love and protection of mama or of daddy. Faith is the trust of the heart that receives what Christ has done and clings to us. So baptism begins us on that journey. Absolution, preaching of the forgiveness of sins continues to comfort and strengthen us on that journey so that we as Christians can live in this world the life to which God has called us with faith in Jesus and love to one another. Without partiality, without discrimination, but freely forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. And then the Lord's Supper is the medicine, the food and drink, Jesus' true body and his precious blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So you think about baptism and absolution, preaching, and the Lord's Supper. These are all ways in which we are comforted, strengthened, and nurtured in the Christian faith and life. So that's an overview. So this is why it says in verse 4 then, 
Lord, when we fall or go astray, absolve, forgive, and lift us up, we pray. And through the sacrament that refers to the Lord's Supper, increase our faith till we depart in peace. That means till we die in the peace of Jesus. Okay? So the hymn, again, we sang this earlier on in our didache, and it's a great hymn to memorize because in a few short stanzas, it puts together the whole pattern of sound words, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and those texts on the sacraments, that pattern of sound words that become the foundation for our understanding of the rest of God's Word. Now with that, I'd like to take you, I hope you all picked up a Bible when you came in, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, what page? 360, page 360. Thank you, Russell. My page numbers are different than yours, so. This is a great story for this review that we just went through about the Ten Commandments and how the Creed proclaims the gospel of God's love for us. As we consider David... King David in the Old Testament was described as a man after God's own heart when he was called to be king and when, we, when he was anointed king. He replaced Saul, the first king, who had abandoned the faith. David is from the tribe of Judah and God promises in the Old Testament that he will raise up the son of David to sit upon his throne, which is ultimately Jesus, son of David, king of kings and lord of lords. But even though David was described as a man after God's own heart, which means that he believed in the Lord and he trusted in the Lord's grace and mercy, David, just like us, was not without sin. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we are going to see how David not only fell into sin, but we are going to see the nature of sin. There are some Christian groups who would say that if you are truly a Christian, a believer, you will not sin. That's not true. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean that we are to live in our sin. So when we talk about the commandments preach repentance, they show us our sin to turn us away from them again and again and again. Every day, every week, every month, every year of our life, we're called away from our sin to faith in Christ and to be renewed by his forgiveness. And that's really what preaching is for. To show us our sin so that we might be renewed by Christ's forgiveness. So let's talk about David and then I have questions for you on this first page. All of these bullets are questions. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. It came to pass at the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, 
that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of remarks along the way before going into the questions. Here's something to remember. When you are doing what God has called you to do, you tend to stay out of trouble. When you don't do what God has called you to do, you tend to get into trouble. What I mean by that is, if you're living with your wife and your children, and you're doing what God has called you to do as a husband, as a wife, as a father and a mother and so forth, you'll still have the struggle with sin, but you tend not to get into trouble. Compared to if you weren't paying attention to your vocation and you went down to the local tavern every other night, you tend to get into trouble. David was king, but he's not out with his troops in battle. He's back in Jerusalem. Let Joab and the soldiers there deal with the battle. So had David been doing his job, even from the beginning, he would not have been in this particular position that he finds himself in. So staying in the vocation, the calling, the station in life which God has given you is also a protection against going astray. Verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw the wo a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now we're going to pause in the reading here for a moment. David goes out in the evening to his roof in the Mediterranean, a common thing. King's house up high in Jerusalem looking out over others, he sees a woman bathing. When you take a bath, you're generally naked. She's beautiful to behold. He inquires about her. He finds out that she is another man's wife. But then he sends troops and sends for her. And he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Where did the sin begin? The sin of adultery? Daniel? When he saw her? So where did it begin in him? In him. In his heart. Yeah. What do we call that? He, it happened in the heart. What was happening there when he saw her? Coveting. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Lust, covetousness. Before he had done anything, before he had committed the outward act of adultery, it began with the sin of covetousness in the heart. Now, I want to ask you this. In the face of covetousness, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have desired things which God has not given you? Perhaps possessions, positions, another person's spouse, or something else that God has not given you. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand because everybody's hand should go up. We all lust, covet, desire. As Christians, in the face of this, what are we to do in the face of lust or covetous desires? Pray. Confessing them as sin, which they are, and praying for God's help. And the Word of God, meditation upon the Scriptures, is an aid against falling into transgression. Instead of praying for God's help, David asks his servants to go fetch Bathsheba so that he can commit adultery with her. So as we go through the rest of the story now, I want you to think about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, which means pay attention to God's word. Honor your father and your mother, which means if you're a king, pay attention to your office and use the authority God has given you rightly. Honor your father and your mother doesn't just apply to children or to citizens. It also applies to parents and to rulers to do and use the authority God gave them rightly. Does David do that? Well, you already know he doesn't. But I want you to pay attention. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal to take another man's possessions. You shall not give false testimony, bear false witness, lie or deceive, and you shall not covet. You're going to see, Tom, he broke them all. That's right. So we continue on here. Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, sent a message to David. She is with child. She's pregnant. Verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. He has been serving in battle. Remember what I told you about doing what God has given you to do? You know, being faithful to your vocation? When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. So, Tom, do you think David is really interested in those things? He's not so interested in those things as creating the appearance of being interested because he is engaging in a conspiracy, a scheme, Wesley, right? A plot to obtain something or to cover something up. Verse 8. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. Wouldn't that be nice? Here's a basket of food, some wine, some cheese. Go to your house, wash yourself. He could spend some time with Bathsheba, 
After all, he's been away from her for who knows how long in the battlefront. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, a key indicator that David's servants were in on the conspiracy, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Uriah's words are in themselves a subtle yet powerful indictment of David. Who is more honorable, the king who stayed home committing adultery with another man's wife while the generals and the troops are in battle, or Uriah, who is a mercenary because he's a Hittite, he's not even Israelite, is serving on the battlefield? Who is more honorable? Well, obviously, Uriah is. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now we learn that the reason why David said, Wait here another day is so that David, as we'll find out in the verses that will follow, thinks up another plan to try to cover up his sin. Verse 13. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. So David made Uriah drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So even the wine did not weaken Uriah's resolve, and he remained there at the king's house and did not go down to his house. Verse 14. Then in the morning it was so that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it happened while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And I'm going to go ahead and skip over some of this material to bring us down to verse 25. David said to the messenger who brought word about Uriah's death, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that the Lord had done displeased the Lord, or more literally or accurately, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what Tom mentioned a moment ago, he broke all of the commandments. I want you to think about this. You shall have no other gods. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's what the first commandment is about. Who did David, in this account, fear and love and trust in or worship most? Elias? Not God. Who was it? Himself, his own flesh, his own desires. You can say also another man's beautiful wife. He made an idol out of her. But any idol that we make is ultimately an idol to the self. Did you know that? Anything you desire, anything you covet, you covet because it is somehow or other you believe going to satisfy some need or desire that you think you have, even if it is contrary to God's word. I got to have this. I can't live without it. You know what a God is when you say, this is the thing I've got to have. Second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or the old language, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It means we should not only fear and love God so that we don't curse or swear or use satanic arts, but that we call upon God in every trouble, that we pray to him. David did none of that. In the face of temptation, he ignored the temptation and the need for prayer, and he continued to pursue the lust of his heart. Third commandment about the Sabbath day. It's about preaching in God's word. He totally disregarded God's word. Fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The authority that God gave him as king, he used in this conspiracy involving Joab and his servants back in Jerusalem to both obtain this woman and then after she became pregnant to try to cover up that sin. Now, why would a political ruler want to cover up an indiscretion like adultery with another man's wife? Why would he want to do that? He didn't want to be shamed as king for what he had done. And you're correct, in biblical times, stoning was punishment for adultery. So his conspiracy involves, what's the next commandment after honor your father and your mother? You shall not murder. You shall not murder. I didn't murder. Soldiers die in battle. I didn't run them through with the sword. Now, let me tell you how the sinful mind works. Self-justification is a powerful motivation of our sinful flesh. I can't say everything that was going through David's mind as a sinner wanting to cover up his sin, but I will tell you how the sinful mind works. I'm the king. I know in a moment of weakness I committed adultery with this beautiful woman. 
but I have responsibilities as king. Therefore, for the sake of the kingdom, I must cover up what I did so that my reign can continue and not bring disgrace upon this office. In fact, I'm going to commend it to God. We're in battle. Uriah's a soldier. We'll put him on the front lines. If God wants to spare his life, God can spare his life. But if God takes his life in battle, what did he say to Joab? Do not let the thing displease you. The sword devours one as well as another. Now, can I say to you exactly that's what David was thinking? No. But I can tell you emphatically that's how the sinful mind works. Rationalization, self-justification. And so David commits murder. He might, has, might just as well have run Uriah through with the sword. We already know, sixth commandment, he committed adultery. Seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Now, this, um, it's helpful if you know a little bit about the laws in biblical Israel at the time, but David brings Bathsheba into his home. Bathsheba's husband is a Hittite, which means she is left without a head as a lonely war widow. So the king steps in, and he seems so noble and righteous, bringing the war widow into his home, and by so doing, any inheritance, so to speak, or property or possessions that would have belonged to Uriah the Hittite becomes his. You shall not steal. So he not only stole another man's wife, but he stole the other man's life, and he stole the other man's property and possessions and inheritance and so forth. And he did it all, Eighth Commandment, by false testimony, false witness, in the lies and the conspiracy. The Ninth and the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We should fear and love God so that we do not Scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house. Oh, what a tangled web he wove. We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife. So, Tom, you're exactly right. There is not a commandment in the Ten Commandments that he did not transgress. In fact, the Apostle James says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, at the end of chapter 11, it says the thing that he did displeased or was evil in the sight of the Lord. David's spiritual condition is in severe jeopardy at this moment. For to continue in the way of sin without repentance leads to spiritual destruction and ultimately condemnation. Let me ask you this. Do you think that God hates David at this moment? No. The thing that he did displeased the Lord was evil in the sight of the Lord, but he doesn't hate him. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Is David 
in this position after he's, it looks like he's, he's accomplished what he wanted. He's covered up his sin. It's not come out into the light of day. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, is now his wife. Neat and tidy. Do you think in that position he can save himself, rescue himself? Or does he need help? He needs help. He needs help from outside of himself. So when we talk about in the catechism confession and the office of the keys, the office of the ministry of God's word, which is what the office of the keys is about. You know, the keys, Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. You know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Jesus' forgiveness is the key that unlocks the kingdom of heaven to sinners. That's why it's called the office of the keys. But the office of the keys is about the ministry. It is about our need for pastors. St. Paul said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But then he asks a series of questions. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So I'll put that question to you. This is Paul's question, Romans chapter 10. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? What's the answer to that? They can't. No one's going to call on the name of the Lord Jesus for help and salvation if they don't believe in him. So how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. How shall they believe in him, Paul asks, whom they have not heard? Answer, they can't. If you don't hear about Jesus, you're not going to be able to come to faith in Jesus to call upon Jesus. Say, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? They can't. And then Paul asks, how shall they believe without a preacher? And the answer is, they can't. We all need a preacher. Someone who speaks God's word from outside of ourselves. That includes the office of a pastor, the office of the ministry. It's my responsibility under God to proclaim God's word to you. But it also, needing this word of God from outside of ourselves, it involves parents. So these three blokes here, the sons of Larry, okay, the Haga boys here, you needed your pastor to speak the word of God from outside of yourself and your dad and mom to speak the word of God outside of yourself. Just like a baby needs mama's milk, the baby doesn't sustain its own life. The baby doesn't feed himself. The baby needs mama's milk. The first Sunday after Easter, like newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So the office of the ministry, the need for pastors, the need for parents who teach, the need for teachers who teach the word of God, simply means that we need a word of God from outside of ourselves because our sinful nature, like David, he has all of these defense mechanisms, self-justification, rationalization. He's not going to acknowledge his sin. 
He's got to be shown his sin and the consequences of sin and what he deserves according to God's law. Temporal death, eternal damnation. So that out of that ministry of the word, faith is created. God be merciful to me, a sinner. All right, with that in mind, let's go to chapter 12. So it's 2 Samuel chapter 12. God sends Nathan, who is called a prophet. And remember from some of our past studies, the word prophet doesn't mean predictor of the future, even though prophets sometimes do that. The word prophet means one who speaks forth the word of God. So God sends Nathan the prophet to be pastor to David. And his ministry to David is fascinating to talk about, and I wish we had more time to talk about the art of being a pastor, because we see it in Nathan. And I'll say this much. My initial uh, reflex action in the face of what David had done would have been to, you know, Mark, grab him by the lapels. What have you done? You know, committing adultery and murder. But that's probably not a safe thing to do when it's the king. It also doesn't necessarily allow the ears to receive because immediately there's defenses set up. So Nathan approaches David in a very unique way so that he listens to the story that he tells. A story that's really about David and about Uriah and Bathsheba and about the sin that David had committed. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against this man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now let's pause here in the narrative to ask a couple of questions. In the parable that Nathan tells, who's the rich man? David. Who is the poor man? Uriah. Who is the little ewe lamb that belongs to the poor man? Bathsheba. David hears the story and he pronounces judgment. What the law demands is punishment. The man who did this shall die. What the law demands is restitution. He shall restore fourfold. He took one little ewe lamb. He shall restore four times what he took. And he should die. 
And that is the judgment of the law. That's what the law demands. Now we know someone made restitution. Someone made a payment that neither David nor you nor I could, could make. Who is that? Christ. Christ, that's right. He dies our death. He makes restitution for our sin upon the cross, which doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. It does matter. And it doesn't mean that forgiveness is cheap. It ain't cheap. It costs the body and blood of the Son of God offered up in death upon the cross. Okay? But David has spoken the judgment of the law. And he's spoken what he deserves. Now, Nathan pulls the trigger, so to speak. Verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now, I want you to notice what follows here. The first thing that Nathan draws attention to is not the adultery, not first. It's not the murder, not first. But that David not only sinned against God's law in the adultery and in the murder of Uriah, but listen carefully, he sinned against the God who loved him and who had made him king and had gifted him with so much. So listen, you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Notice to this point what he is underscoring is transgression against the love of God that had made him king, that had prospered his kingdom, that had given him everything that he did not deserve. And then he goes on to say, you killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now we'll pause there. Look at verse 13 again. What do we call this when David says, I have sinned against the Lord? Confession. That's not absolution, that's confession. Absolution is I forgive you. I have sinned. That's confession. Now notice what he does not say. I have sinned against the Lord, but she was really beautiful. 
I have sinned against the Lord, but I didn't mean it. I have sinned against the Lord, but it was a moment of weakness. There's confession born of repentance is genuine and makes no excuses, but accepts God's judgment. I have sinned. Then Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. What do we call that? Absolution. Now, if according to the law, the man who did this must die, by what right or authority can Nathan say to him, you will not die because the law says you should die. How can Nathan say you shall not die? How can he say that? By, what? by authority, be more specific, Tommy. By, by the authority of Jesus, what? By the authority of Jesus' sacrifice, by the authority of Jesus' death. In other words, Nathan can say to David, your sins are forgiven, you will not die because Jesus died for you. And I know that Jesus' death doesn't happen for quite a few centuries from this, but his death is so powerful that it reaches backward and forward in time. There is no salvation apart from the salvation that Jesus won for us sinners in his death upon the cross. So it is by the authority of that death that Nathan can absolve David. Now notice though what surrounded this. Is there going to be adversity in David's house? Yes, lots of it. Even verse 14 and 15. However, because by this you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So David's going to experience strife in his house, difficulties in his kingdom. The child conceived out of wedlock in an adulterous affair is going to die. Well, if, if the Lord forgave David, how come all this stuff still happens? Shouldn't that all just go back, Humpty Dumpty, back on the wall, all things just like they were? Well... Why? Consequences of sin? You could say that. But doesn't the absolution take away the consequences? Is God punishing David here? I'll forgive you, but I'm going to put the screws to you and punish you. Is that what he's doing? Suffering for the sake of faith? Say, say again, Grace. It, it happened to the thief on the cross. He seeks forgiveness. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But he still dies on the cross, doesn't he? That is true. Jim. Our sin does have consequences. All right, Susan? The psalmist says, when they slew him, slew him, then, them, then they sought him. All right, what does this mean? If David, in a position of prosperity, 
did not depend upon the grace of God or rely upon his word, but went astray from that and committed these grievous sins. What will serve him better to keep him in the grace of God, in the forgiveness of his Lord, so that he depends upon nothing else but that, is the cross of affliction, hardship, suffering. As King Solomon said in Proverbs, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So the adversity that will continue for the rest of his life, yes, on account of what he had done, is actually the discipline of the God who loved him. So that through being slain with the sword, he might draw closer to the Lord. That is to say, through the things that he suffers, he would learn to depend only upon the grace of his Lord. And this is why there's affliction in our lives. You know, I am getting to the point where I give thanks more for the affliction and suffering that I've gone through for 62 years of life than for the joyous things. Because through the things that I've suffered, I learn more deeply the riches of God's love and grace in Christ. Which then, wonderfully, enables me to appreciate the blessings. So the affliction that David will endure will actually be used by God to keep him in God's grace, in God's forgiveness. Paul spoke about this, the sinful flesh he talked about when he said he had a thorn in the flesh. And I sought the Lord to remove this thorn, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, most gladly will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When David relied upon his own strength, we saw how weak he was, though he didn't realize it, and he fell into sin. So now by the affliction, by the discipline that he will endure, he will be drawn closer to his Lord to rely upon his grace alone for salvation. Now I want to just wrap up by having you turn in the catechism, uh, in the hymnal, to page 326, where you have the catechism. And on the top of 326, the left-hand column, you've got three questions. What is confession? What sin should we confess? And which are these? And on the handout, on the second page, I have those questions. Uh, questions in bold, what is confession, what sin should we confess, which are these, and a few points to make under each. So for the sake of time, we'll just read through the confession, the questions, and then I'll make a few comments here for you to draw this to a close. First, and you can respond, what is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, 
that is, forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So we saw it in the narrative, didn't we? David confessed, but he would not have confessed had Nathan not been sent to him with God's word to call him to repentance and to bring about that confession. First, that we confess our sins. Second, that we receive absolution. Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Whose word is Nathan speaking? God's word. It's not Nathan's word. It's God's word. Okay? And, and God himself is speaking through his pastor to David. That's what the office of the ministry is about. We are called to speak Christ's word. So I have a bullet here. The purpose of confession is to receive Christ's absolution for the strengthening of our faith in Christ. Think of the absolution as the opening or our ongoing, I love you from the Lord Jesus. Faith lives from his love and forgiveness. And that's what David in his affliction would learn to depend upon. Okay, next question. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. Now, two points about this. Before God, we plead guilty of all sins. Like in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses. That is a confession of sins. In our prayers, Lord, forgive me for my short-temperedness with my children, for losing my patience. And we have the promise of the Lord's forgiveness. The second half, but before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. There are times where we are burdened by sin for which the general preaching of the gospel or the Lord's Supper is not comforting our consciences. So just as a child has the privilege and access to mother or father for love and forgiveness when they are discouraged, so we have the privilege to approach our Heavenly Father not only in our prayers, but when our conscience is sorely grieved and vexed through our pastor, who is commanded, I am commanded by Christ to forgive the sins of every repentant sinner, no matter who they are, who confesses their sins as David did, and then as Nathan absolved them. So think about the absolution privately as an extension of the absolution or the forgiveness that's proclaimed publicly from the sermon. That's why when we invite people to come for private confession, we light the candles on the pulpit from where the gospel is generally preached, Christ's forgiveness, but if you're still troubled, you have the privilege of coming and confessing. And by naming the sin, the sin is put to death. And then nobody else is there you can have your pastor speak Christ's word directly to you and apply the comforting passages of the gospel where you need it most. Okay. To the next question then, the final one, 
Which are these sins? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Now there is a danger, or a caution, perhaps I should say, about the example in the story today. And that is this. David not only committed adultery in his heart, he actually committed the physical act, right? He not only committed murder in the sense of being angry with someone or bitter against someone, he actually physically arranged for the death of Uriah. When it comes to the gift of private confession and absolution, Unfortunately, some Christians think it's only for the, quote, big sins. Like even the world would consider, well, maybe they don't consider adultery a big sin anymore. They used to. But murder, now there's a big sin. You better go to confession. But what the catechism here says, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been hot-tempered? Rude? Any of you? Quarrelsome? Any of you? Have you hurt someone, any of you, by your words or deeds? Have you stolen anything, been negligent, which is a form of stealing, wasted anything or done anything wrong? Notice how ordinary those things are. I am grateful that, you know, in any given week, there's maybe two, three, half a dozen folks in the congregation who take advantage of confession and absolution for the sake of the comfort of Christ's forgiveness and how that strengthens faith and delivers the guilty conscience and sets our hearts at rest. And that's the purpose of it. So that's how we're going to conclude today. And we'll talk more about uh, the ministry next week. It was a long reading tonight, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But I want you simply to remember this. We all need pastors to speak God's word from outside of ourselves, to call us to repentance and faith so that we can hear and receive Christ's absolution, his forgiveness, and have our faith and troubled hearts and consciences revived. Because the fruit of Jesus' forgiveness that we receive in our broken hearts includes the miracle of being able to live in this world of tears, to be able to live under the cross of affliction. And we learn from Jesus' forgiveness to us how to live in his forgiveness to one another. So we prepare for the sacrament by the singing of the hymn, 614, stanzas 5 through 8.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins to God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Father of mercies and God of all comfort, our only help in time of need, look with favor upon those in our congregation and extended family suffering great afflictions of the body. Brad Yench, recovering from bypass surgery in intensive care. Harold Campen, recovering from hip surgery. Richard, who suffered a brain injury after a fall. Walt Disson, who remains hospitalized with many physical infirmities. Dawn Frederich and her recovery from surgery. Jan Wallen, who has returned home from rehab and is now in assisted living with her husband, Lyle. Mark Gretzinger, who continues to undergo medical testing. Kathleen Hetzel, undergoing testing for cancer. And the many suffering with cancer and in treatment for whom we have been praying, especially Tanya, Dennis, Gabby, Mike, Peyton, Kathy, and Heather. Assure them of your mercy. Deliver them from the temptations of the evil one. And give them patience and comfort in their illnesses. According to your gracious will, restore their health and strength. Or give them grace to accept their tribulations with courage and in the blessed hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Again, let us pray to the Lord. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you desire not the death of a sinner, but rather that we turn from our evil ways and live. In your mercy, you sent your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who won for us forgiveness 
and everlasting salvation. Grant us a true confession that dead to sin, we may be raised up by your life-giving absolution. Preserve us from impenitence and unbelief. And by the Lord's body and blood and the sacrament, cleanse us from our unrighteousness, clothe us with the righteousness purchased with the blood of Jesus, and strengthen our faith, increasing our love and hope. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you on this day for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Paschal Lamb, who is sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying, he has destroyed death, and by his rising again, he has restored to us everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment you condemn the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your son Jesus Christ our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do 
in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Grant us thy peace. Amen. Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. <laughs>